politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to guard our liberties and preserve and protect our republic. This is Daniel Horowitz back in the house. Wednesday, the last day of March, the last day of the first quarter of this year. We began the year with a hopeful tone that perhaps 2021 would bring us our salvation, our freedom, but here we are, the first quarter in the can, and our country is more of a basket case than it's ever been. We have illegal aliens flooding our border, and our government, rather than deterring it, completes the cycle, the criminal conspiracy of human smuggling, sex trafficking. We have illegal aliens in San Diego who are getting more in-person instruction than our own American children because of a virus that doesn't affect illegals, even though they test positive at higher rates. That's America for you. We have all these black on Asian attacks being blamed, of course, on white supremacism, that it turns out, as we predicted, the one that beat that 65-year-old woman in front of a midtown Manhattan, by the way, uh, apartment, nobody doing anything about it either, had just been paroled for murdering his mother. Again, that's America for you. America 2021. Black on Asian attacks. Nobody doing anything about it. Standing there and filming it with their camera. And then, of course, it's blamed on white supremacism when, in fact, it was not, not just a black individual, which really shouldn't matter. What does matter is that he was paroled in 2019 that was the big jailbreak in New York City that we reported on for murdering his mother. He stabbed her to death. He was extremely violent. But they just let him out because that's America. Is this country even worth fighting for? That's the question we're going to ask today. Is this country worth fighting for? And when it comes to the most illogical things, whether it's illegals having more rights than Americans, whether it's violent criminals being released, whether it's men or women, women or men, COVID fascism, where is the strong alternative? We don't hear it. So is this a country even worth fighting for? And the answer is, we've lost our country already. There's nothing to fight for. We're just trying to find an oasis, a couple of places where we could li live with some sort of semblance of normalcy. So later today, we're going to talk about this dynamic of Republicans making excuse, excuse after excuse for the most extreme things of the left. Governor Kristi Noem continuing to champion her veto of a simple bill, not even fighting transgenderism in general, just simply barring men from female sports. We're going to have the author of that bill from the South Dakota legislature on the show a little later today. But I wanted to start with a very important story that I thought really embodies every story, every absurdity that we watch in this country and we see, how could this take root? Well, an article written by Phil Shiver, my colleague here at The Blaze, for first time ever, majority of Americans don't belong to a church or other house of worship. First, a word from today's sponsor, MySonHunterMovie.com. Uh, last week, we had the producer of 
the Hunter Biden film on the show to discuss the filming of it. The mainstream media and big tech have worked tirelessly to censor and cover up the corruption of the Biden crime family. But now you have a chance to help make this story be heard around the world. These are the same filmmakers as you heard last year, last week behind the Gosnell movie that was really very successful um, in telling the story of abortions that weren't told for decades. This new film is called My Son Hunter will expose, expose not just the Hunter Biden scandal, but also the cover-up of media and big tech. From Hunter's wild escapades to the contents of his laptop, his shady farm business deals in Ukraine, Russia, and his ties to China. But these independent filmmakers need your help because obviously it's a not-for-profit. Hollywood and YouTube certainly aren't going to promote it. They're going to censor it. It's too controversial. That's why they're bringing this film directly to the people funded by you. Your gift of $50, $100, even $10 will help expose the most corrupt family in politics since the Clintons. And the good thing is, at least until the federal government goes after it, your donation is 100% tax deductible. So please go to MySonHunterMovie.com right now to make your donation. MySonHunterMovie.com Now, folks, back to this story. Church-going citizens are now a minority demographic in the United States. The percentage of Americans who belong to a house of worship such as a church or synagogue, dipped below 50% for the first time, according to a survey released by Gallup. Basically, they've been releasing this survey since 1937, at a time when 73% of Americans reported belonging to a house of worship. It is now at 47%. Okay? 1999. As late as 1999, okay? 62 years later, still 70% of Americans reported uh, membership in a church. So in just 20 years, it went from 70 to 47%. Over the past two decades, the percentage of Americans who do not identify with any religion has grown from 8% in 1998 to 2000 to 13%. In 2008, 2010, and 21% over the past three years. Folks, this is the answer to everything. If you're asking why, why do people accept COVID fascism? Why do they expect, accept illegal immigration? Why is their moral compass so flipped upside down, inside out on every issue? Well, that's it. 66% of Americans born before 1946 are members of a church. 58% of baby boomers, 50% of Gen X, and then it drops all the way to 36% among millennials. And I'm sure the next generation will be lower and lower. And folks, this is just a measure of church membership. As you well know, very few people, small percentage of those who are members really believe and godly values, a lot of that's the rock gut from the top in these church establishments. But that story just embodies where America is now. You know what else embodies where America is now? This is from the UK Daily Mail. 
U.S. Navy tells staff on extremism training course they can advocate for BLM at work, but they're not allowed to discuss politically partisan issues. So basically, you know, they were asked in these training courses, people are like, hey, you know, what about everything BLM's doing? They're saying, no, BLM's not political. And by the way, I was, um, I'm going to put this out on Twitter later, a rancher near the Lackland Air Force Base near Del Rio, Texas, which, by the way, is right at the epicenter of where illegals are coming in. I was speaking with her about um, ranchers being attacked by illegals running in, and we just happened to be talking about the Air Force Base because um, her husband worked there. They have BLM signs and the rainbow flag up on Lackland Air Force Base. We now have a diversity training officer who's going to oversee special forces. There is no country left to save. That's my point. In some ways, it's comforting. we got to start from scratch. But it's just bizarre. You look at, you know, Tennessee is another state just past constitutional carry. I can't figure out why that's the only issue that they will fight for to the po- to to the degree that our country existed in 1789 when it comes to guns it's it's, it's kind of shocking i mean i'm all for that but why can't we have that on the other issues i just don't get it meanwhile we have more stuff going on at the border The Uvalde mayor told me his schools in his city had to be on lockdown because of three pursuits into their town. More of them are coming armed. Crazy stories going on there, so we're going to be covering that. Another story I'm working on, I just wanted to let you know. Where are the girls? So if you notice, the border, from the border invasion... If you look at the facilities, they're all boys, every one of them. You could find in Donna, Texas, a family unit facility with parents. But where are the single girls? It's not that they're not coming. Usually the split is about 70, 75% male, but there are unaccompanied females. Unaccompanied, so to speak. They're not really, of course, because they're being self-trafficked. I'm I'm working on this. But from what I'm hearing, there are no girl facilities. They come with a phone number. And DHS calls up that phone number and someone comes down and picks them up. Sex traffickers. Our government is complicit in the sex trafficking operation. Again, where are the girl facilities? Where are they being held? I don't think you'll find any. So that's a story I'm working on. There's a lot of other sundry things that I'm not going to have time to get to today. The insurrection probe is falling apart. All these charges and holding people because of the Capitol attack. People being held on flimsy charges without bail. Judges are starting to get fed up. It is some good news that at least... You know, because I didn't think they could get fair justice in the in the criminal justice system, but at least it's a modicum of that. So maybe we'll cover that tomorrow. 
This is from uh, going back to the border. Raul Ortiz, the deputy, he is the deputy um, chief of Border Patrol. So he said, he confirms what we were saying all along, that it's self-separation. The cartels are spinning off the minors from the family units because they announced they're not Title 42-ing them. I mean, this is the one thing everyone's complaining about the border. The border, this, oh man, it's terrible, the facilities. They're not training their fire on one thing. It's Title 42. I don't know why there's no united message behind that. It's, It's a little bit bizarre. So that's going on there. He told reporters that he anticipates more than a million encounters of migrants this year alone. Cost $6.1 million to stand up the processing facility in Donna, Texas. $6 million per month. Paid for by, by us, of course. We have a country of by and for illegal aliens. But that's what that issue. There's also a lot more on the academic side of um, COVID. Some interesting things going on. We could try to get to either at the end of today's show or, or tomorrow. But I wanted to get back to our guest. And today's guest is sponsored by ConstitutionCoach.com. You only have a little bit more time to sign up. So now is your time, April 25th or May 30th. We are going out together on a trip to Front Sight, Nevada with ConstitutionCoach.com for both defensive handgun and constitution training. During the day, we have the best defensive handgun training you will ever get. You will feel comfortable handling a firearm, shooting from the holster, clearing malfunctions, really enjoying the camaraderie of fellow patriots in this audience and other patriots around the country. Terrific classes from... Rick Green at night on the Constitution, and yours truly will be there. And we will also help organize and strategize some of our state team leaders for ConAction.network. So again, go to ConstitutionCoach.com to check out the details. 90% off the regular training, but only if you do it through ConstitutionCoach.com. Make sure you reserve your spot. Bring your family members. I mean, I don't want to hear these excuses. Oh, my wife doesn't shoot. Again, this course, it, it runs the gamut from beginners to people that you know, have handled firearms their entire life. You will all gain something from this course, come out um, really knowing how to handle a firearm, which is obviously something that needs to be done today. Now, before I introduce our next guest, Representative Rhonda Milstead from South Dakota, I just want to review a little bit what happened there in the state with this Female sports bill, HB 1217. So obviously, like all of these heavy, heavy red states, Republicans have insane majorities on paper in South Dakota. I believe there's only about eight House Democrats and three Democrats left in the Senate there. So they have um, just insane majorities. And you would expect something as bedrock as, hey, men being men, women being women, would sail through the legislature, and be signed by the governor with lightning speed. And indeed, uh, HB 1217, which was introduced by Rhonda, uh, went through the House pretty uneventful. The governor never raised any concerns about it, although never really talked about it much. 
went to the Senate. Well, that's where you start having the issue with the Republicans in name only, and they bottled it up in committee. They had to use a smokeout, what's the equivalent of a discharge petition in, in Congress, to get it out on the Senate floor. Um, and they got, you know, they, they did get it passed, but there were a number of Republicans that voted against it. And the governor announces, hey, I'm, I'm really excited to sign it. She announced it on International Women's Day, almost to tweak the left, which is, you know, claims to be for women, but then they're they're not because they think men are women too. And then suddenly she lets the bill lay over a little bit, and then we hear she has concerns. And then she sends back this um, veto threat in the form of, you know, a modification for style, which is typically only used for grammar or certain, you know, just provisions that were overlooked, not to gut the bill, but she suggests gutting the bill, and they didn't accept her um, suggestions in the legislature, and then she vetoed it. And all along, it's been really bizarre. She hasn't really explained why she's fighting it specifically, other than she's worried about legal challenges, and you know she doesn't really say she's scared of the Chamber of Commerce, but kind of does, and big tech, and she's scared of the NCAA, but she's not scared of them. She's going to fight smarter, but doesn't say how she's going to fight smarter. Um, she has issued an executive order and said that she is going to bar men in female sports, but there's, of course, no teeth in it. So it's a really bizarre song and a dance. And as I've noted before, I, I generally like the governor. Um, I don't have anything against her. It's not really about her. This is a problem that's occurring in many other states where we think we have red leadership, but we really don't have conservative leadership. And to the extent we do, they're too scared of the business interests that now have taken over every bastion in this country. They promote cultural Marxism, and no one wants to stand up to them. And this is helping paint red states blue, and that's going to ensure that we don't even have anywhere to escape. A lot of a lot of you guys wanted to go to South Dakota, given what's going on there with COVID and everything. And you know the governor does deserve credit for doing a good job on that issue. But what is going on? What is the truth? How did this bill come about? Why is the governor opposing it? Where do things stand now? With us today is none other than the bill sponsor, Rhonda Milstead. She is in the South Dakota House of Representatives. She also happens to be a small business owner. Um, she was into real estate. She served as executive officer for the Sioux Falls Board of Realtors. She was also a manager of a real estate firm. She also owned and operated a small uh, business, a cafe. So really, you know, flyover country, small business owner who joins the legislature, typical citizen legislator um, that is just trying to make America great again in terms of its family values, um, faith, family, whatever happened to that. Rhonda, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Daniel. I thank you for the opportunity. And you, you kind of said, um, you used an interesting word that I really appreciate. You said bedrock. Um, and, and this is a, a bedrock value, um, especially for the Republican Party, but in, in terms of families as well. It seems that um, this is a bill that comes in um, and it's spun one way, but the reality is it is about a family value. The people that we've heard from in support of this bill, and they're not just a few, they're hundreds and even thousands, and I'm sure the governor's heard from them as well, that say um, 
it's, it's insanity to let males play on female teams. And, and they want this for families. Um, you, you know, another interesting thing we talk about, um, South Dakota, and South Dakota is a great place to live. Um, I raised my family here. It's fantastic um, because of those values. Um, and we say right now, we say, well, we're open for business. Businesses are coming. They want to come here. We want to bring them here. We want to increase our economy. But at the same time, we're saying don't bring your politics with you. And then here we have this bill um, that just reeks of family values and supporting females, and um, our governor vetoes the bill. Actually, she says she didn't, but she did. <laughs> so that, that's kind of what we have. And sure. So, um, so, so, I mean, I've never seen someone so, she's kind of bashful about it, but resolute about it. it it's kind of bizarre, so I want to start from the beginning here, because a lot of her supporters would... would um, give you the impression that, oh, she's been on top of this from day one and very supportive of it and pushing it, but always had concerns from day one and wants to do it smarter. But it's kind of a retroactive argument that was conjured up late in the game when she kind of felt she was in trouble with conservatives nationally. I want to start from the beginning last year. Um, and Because okay. I'm, I'm glad that you talked about the family values aspect of this. I find it interesting that even the Republicans that rhetorically indulge this issue, they can't even speak to the family values and the sanity of God-given sexuality. Um, the best they could conjure up is it's not fair for men to be in female sports, which we agree with. But it's like, you know, that that's like the ceiling to which they'll even militate against that agenda. It's 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 not even a family values thing. It's just a, it's not fair to females like that. That's the only thing you can even get get them to talk about. But the reason I start with that is because last year you had a bill that really spoke to the family values of this, this notion that you're just going to castrate and mutilate someone and puberty blockers for minors. So just a simple bill that, I mean, we have all sorts of healthcare regulations in this country that I think we both agree are sometimes too heavy-handed. Heck, doctors are even having trouble prescribing ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, uh, dealing with a pandemic. And, um, you know, somehow we are told that that it's okay for doctors to just do stuff that is that harms the body, especially to minors. So, you know, you guys had a bill to block this. So talk about the history of that bill because there's no NCAA involved in that bill, right? There isn't, but people will bring it in. Uh, they will bring it in because they, um, anytime you have something that um, kind of crosses cultural lines, then that's what people start screaming at you. And, and we had um, the trans community come out against that bill. But it was, that was a bill that protected children. And if you um, look at the people in our country, if, if we look at other countries and we see countries doing things to children, uh, we scream bloody murder. Um, that's just, those are atrocities and we don't want those to happen. But yet when it happens in America now, we want to overlook it. Um, and this was family values. It was about children. And to have, a, um, I mean, 100% support um, from many legislators that, that could see it that way. It had nothing against anyone we just wanted children to be able to grow up and figure out their own lives. Um, and th what came out of it was many people, and, e and even the hospitals, the doctors in town, um, there were probably 20 doctors in the room when that first hit a committee hearing in their white coats, um, kind of intimidating, yep. saying, um, we're going to hurt children by this. Um, yep. Children are going to commit suicide. Those are the arguments come up on that bill and on the sports bill. Um, 
So you could cut their the stuff off. Is, you, could, you could, you could, you um, could amputate them, and that's medicine. I mean, like we're seeing, wearing a mask blocks a virus, but early therapeutic treatment for it uh, they ban. I mean, so so this is what you're dealing with, even in red states where the medical establishment, every establishment, every business establishment seems to be inexorably against values that you know weren't even questioned until a few years ago. Um, where is the governor on that bill? Um, that bill, um, she her, her, she kind of took the same stance she did on this one after the fact that the, there were some problems with the bill. Um, that's just kind of an easy excuse to start it out and, and get you. Um, if any any person can say, well, I think there's a few problems with it, and that way they have to avoid conversation about it or any stand on it. Um, but we have a Senate who is much more liberal than the House is. Uh, and I, the feeling was with that bill as well as with the sports bill that it would be killed in the Senate, and that one was. Uh, it was absolutely killed in the Senate. Um, but it had to do with medicine, too. I mean, um, and, and that the, the tests, there are tests out there, and you can go either way on it, but if there's any risk to a child, and there, the risks um, were testified to in committee that um, it could cause children to become sterile, it would weaken um, their bone density, those tests are out there. I don't know why any doctor would even consider it. Well, it violates the Hippocratic Oath, but I think we've seen some interesting decisions being made by some doctors this past year on what to do and not do uh, about this virus. Um, So the governor, again, was very quiet, didn't really support it much, but then retroactively comes up with these concerns. Um, Okay, so now we get to this year, HB 1217. You introduce it in the House, you push it through. It seems like it got, you know, overwhelming support. What was the governor saying at the time? The governor never said um, openly said anything out the bill. She had sent a message through her staff uh, back in December and January through different staff people that if if the bill got to her desk, she would sign it. That was the only message, and and they were aware of the bill. Her attorney, her general counsel, had seen the attorney, uh, so they they knew of the bill. We didn't drop the bill until February first. But they knew that that bill was out there, that that bill was coming, but they still stayed silent. We had four public hearings on this bill, two in the House, two in the Senate. Uh, nothing was brought forward on that bill to say, um, as, as in the after, um, after effect, that it was poorly written. It was an excellent written bill. That bill is very similar to the bills that have been passed in Idaho, Arkansas, Mississippi. Tennessee's is a little different. Uh, but it's a strong bill. It was written by attorneys through Alliance Defending Freedom. Um, it was um, tweaked and kind of brought to a South Dakota level of legalese by um, the, our Legislative Research Council. Uh, there's many attorneys that sit on the House side and on the Senate side. So lots of people had seen this bill uh, and had no problems with any of the language. Sure. And, and, and mind you, the, the bill, you know, when people are used to Washington, the bills are hundreds of pages, any major bill. This bill was literally just a few pages. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like it was some buried provision or complicated thing. Um, it was the meat and potatoes of the bill that she had issues with long after she kind of didn't have issues with it. So could you explain what happened between the time of this bill just sailing through the House, as you would expect any strong Republican legislature, especially 
uh, you know, in a time like this, when the Biden administration is really pushing this stuff, you're naturally going to have the opposing party push back very strongly in the states that they control. And we are seeing that in Arkansas and Tennessee, Mississippi. Um, what happened there that kind of got this derailed? Uh, I, I guess just the message that she kept sending out, the uncertainty, the, um, the I, yeah, I, I think that there probably were definitely influences. I don't know that they came outside this from outside the state, um, but even in committee, it was the Chamber of Commerce, the Sports Authority, the Board of Regents, um, the active, High School Activity Association, the Public School District. They all came out um, very strongly against the bill, and that pressure was kept on after the bill had gotten to her desk. Um, and at that point in time, too, the governor's office was pressuring um, legislators. I mean, if, I don't know if you saw, but we had seven uh, Republicans switch their vote. They voted for it in the House, but when it came time to overturn the veto, they voted against it. Um, but at that point in time, uh, I'm going to be real honest, it was later in the day and people wanted to go home. And so I, I, I think maybe you know the Senate adjourned at 3.30. We were debating the bill from 3.30 till about 4.10. Senate was gone. Seven people probably figured, you know, why bother because they're not going to do it anyway, so they switched their vote. Um, and, and we are in service. We are elected to serve the people of South Dakota. We knew we had to give it a day. Why anybody would be a hur- in a hurry and switch their vote is very disappointing as well. And then that comes back to, are you a Republican and do you hold to these values? And do you hold to um, your oath of office that you are there to serve the people? And so that's very disappointing. Sure. So you so ultimately you had the votes despite the defections to override in the House. Did the Senate vote, to, uh, vote at all or they just left town? They left town. Left town. They didn't have they the votes. Town. Okay. No, the governor left town. The governor left town right after we delivered the message to her that we weren't going to accept that we said her style and form changes were not constitutional. So could you go talk about that a little bit as well, just the process um, of the style and form recommendation that she gave, um, which is kind of like the way I view it as a pending veto, that if you m- make the changes, it automatically becomes law, but if you don't, then it's rendered a veto. Um, why, do, why didn't she have the prerogative to do that? Why doesn't she have the prerogative to do style and yes. form? Uh, um, she does have the prerogative to do style and form, but like you said, style and form is, um, I write an essay for my English class and the teacher sends it back. Style and form is maybe I reversed a couple words or I threw an adjective wrong or I punctuated it wrong. That's style and form. But the reality of what she did is she gutted the bill. She completely took out two sections uh, and rewrote um, the very first section. Um, she pulled, which was another issue, I mean, the birth certificate. The birth certificate, we had a bill in South Dakota that you could not change your birth certificate. The sex you were born with is the sex that stayed on your birth certificate. That was another bill that got to the Senate and was soundly smashed. Mm. And so the governor came back with this when she edited this bill and said, well, we're going to use a certificate instead of a signed um, form that says this is how old you are and this is what sex you are and you don't take any drugs. Well, anybody can change a birth certificate in South Dakota, so what good was that going to do? Um, and, and no more than if you move on to those two executive orders that say you shall or um, you should, but nothing about you will. 
there, there's no teeth in them. And both organizations have pretty much said, we're going to keep doing business as usual. So I'm trying to get to the crux of this debate here. Um, you know, you put all these bills together. You mentioned the third one now with the birth certificate. So you put it all together. It seems clear that both from the governor and from the liberal Republicans in the Senate that this issue is kind of a no-fly zone. It's just something that they will not broach. They will not touch. They will not end, you know, go after the status quo. It doesn't seem to be any issue with technicalities. But I want to try to be as fair as I can, and it's, it's kind of hard because I, I want you to um, give your side of the story um, what, where you disagree with the governor. But I first have to understand the governor's position. She wrote in, op-ed for National Review yesterday, Fighting Smart for Fairness in Women's Sports. So I was hoping to kind of glean from there her argument of what she felt was wrong with the bill and why she feels her strategy is better. And I come out not understanding either. I don't even know what her strategy is. She basically says that she you know, badly wants men out of female sports. She's done so many other conservative things in her life. And she's such a good conservative. And... um. I, basically, she feels this is smarter. Uh, most of it is really about other issues, actually, just how she's a really a good conservative, and that's great. And she's going to continue building a coalition of athletes, governors, attorneys general, and other leaders to take on the NCAA. You can join our efforts at defendtitle9.com. Once our coalition is large enough there is no way the NCA can possibly punish us all. So I, I guess if, if I could get her strategy, it's something like, and again, I'm not trying to be cute here. I, I guess there's two arguments. One is she's saying it's going to be challenged legally. Um, number two is that politically she feels we're, we're maybe in a weak position. The business community and the NCAA has too much power. You'll get mowed down now, but let's build a cross-state coalition and then maybe later we can do something more. But then now she issued an executive order banning men from female sports, but somehow doesn't fear the NCAA doing anything for that. Um, what's your take on her, her strategy? Uh, the strategy is, I, I mean, it's just words. It, it doesn't do anything. Um, I, I know that somebody had sent her a legal opinion um, several days before this veto vote had sent it to her attorney, uh, allowing males to play in sports is um, uh, it, it, it's not legally defensible right from the beginning. So if you're worried about having to defend something, you need to put some teeth into um, what you're trying to write. Um, people say we're, def- I mean, that the bill discriminates against a certain um, person. But really, if you don't do it, you're discriminating against a female who wants to play in the female-specific sport. I, I mean, we live in a society where people are just going to reach out and sue um, over lots of things that make no sense. But it has been defended in court, um, despite what Biden has done in his Equality Act. It's been defended. Judges have issued opinions that say that you can segregate sports by um, by their um, the sex that they were born with, because there are significant physical differences. Um, I, I don't know that I'm answering your question because you want to know why. I don't know what her strategy is, but what I do feel is that it's just words. It is words, and, and we can say things. I can say something to my child. I think you said you have four kids. You can tell your child not to lie. Um, you can tell your child that they should share their toys 
but if they don't do it, you have to have consequences. Yeah. And so a coalition, if, if you can put something on paper and have people sign a petition, but if you don't have um, any, any consequences behind it, who's going to listen to you? The fact that she issued an executive order that says to the universities, you should not allow males to play in female sports, it still gives them the right to do what they want. It's bizarre it's because enough. it's almost like she plays two sides of the fence at the same time. On the one hand, she's like, I'm doing something much more effective. It's really good. But on the other hand, she's blatantly saying it has to not be effective. Because if it is, then they're going to retaliate, and we can't have that, and we're going to lose the business. And, you know, she openly says we can't butt heads with the NCAA. So I, I don't even – I honestly don't understand um, – and, and I find it with some of her defenders online too is actually a, a, f- a longstanding friend of mine – I wrote a defense of hers at PJ Media, and I was really excited to read it because I was, you know, you know, wanted to see what this smart strategy is, and I came away from it not even being able to articulate it, much less debate it, because I don't know what the it is. Um, I guess my question to you is: You've been involved, you know, you you were in, really in the business community of Sioux Falls. It really seems like the Sioux Falls Chamber of Commerce is very much in opposition to anything that opposes the gender-bending, transgender agenda. How has this come about? You know, where I live, I'm in the body of blue America on the East Coast, so it's pretty obvious. But I look at a state like South Dakota, and my question is, why doesn't the business community reflect the values of the majority of the people? Um, I think that you might find, I mean, I, I know that there are people that have dropped their chamber memberships over this. That's what's going to speak to the chamber. Um, I guess you, you see um, the chamber, when the chamber needs a, a new executive director, they hire somebody from someplace else. Uh, and when you bring in some of those outside influences, they, they do bring their politics with them. That's what happens. But I, I do believe, I mean, even our tourism industry feels like um, people are going to reject us because of it. Uh, but I, I just, I think that it's uh, a false claim. Um, there's been people that have been thinking about moving here that have re- re- reached out to legislators. I, I know I've seen them and say, I thought you guys were grounded but apparently you aren't. Uh, And I still believe that we are. I think that we are a faith-based state um, that is grounded. The majority of people are grounded, are very grounded. This matters to them. Uh, And I think that um, they've sat back. Um, I I, I think we sit back and we think that these things won't happen. We talked about a little bit earlier. Who would have thought 10 years ago that we would be talking about males playing on female teams at this particular time. People um, just think everyone's going to do it right, and so they're quiet, and, and they're not aware of it. And then when it comes out, then they're hopping mad. And I think that you're going to see that in South Dakota, is that people are. And you'll see it in our elections in a year and a half. So that's what I was wondering. That's where I wanted to kind of finish this discussion with where you feel we're headed with the legislature. I'll, I'll never forget a friend of mine called me all excited after the election. He's like, look, we did really great in the state legislatures. And we talked about different states, and one of them was South Dakota. You know, the Democrats almost got wiped off the map in the South Dakota Senate. They lost a few seats. They're down to three people. And you look and you see almost half the Republicans were opposed to this. So 
How does that happen over the years where there's such a disconnect between the Republican elected officials in these red states? And are you hearing from people on the ground finally taking note, focusing on these votes, focusing on who voted that, you know, the right way? Uh, I am. And I was at a luncheon yesterday of of, um, some legislators, but a lot of people that just are concerned about what's going on. And they're already looking to who we're going to primary. They're talking about it. They're digging for people. And they have been encouraged to to not listen to words. Somebody knocks on your door and they say, hey, I'm going to do this. Um, Then you um, maybe you vote for them, but then you watch and you see the way that they vote. Uh, and I heard from one lady yesterday, she said, you know what, That's, this representative, this Republican representative told me this, and I watched her votes, and I called her and I said, you're voting like that Democrat that you told me not to vote for. <laughs> you're voting the same way. And that's what you're going to see, and if we can, but you know, you can't take your eye off that ball. Um, and I'll use 9-11 as an example. I've, I've done that before. 9-11 was something that could have turned our country around and made us aware of things. But a few months after it happened, we all got busy with our lives, kind of put it out of our mind. We do that here. We live normal lives. We, you know, live the happy days experience, and and so um, we're not a, we're not paying attention. We think things are going along really smoothly. But it takes something like this to wake people up and say, uh, "I should have been watching, and I must start watching now," because we still have a few cracks, and we need to fix those cracks and seal them up before the doors open wide. I, I think that people in South Dakota are going to see that, and they will. I think you'll see it in our elections. Wow, that I mean, we're certainly all hopeful of that. What, what my concern is, it seems like even in redder states, it's just like all of the political leadership, the business leadership, they often seem, you know, the medical establishment, as you mentioned, they seem to be just as liberal as those from my state of Maryland. It almost seems like there's no difference in the culture. So the question is, how do you fight back when the business interests, the people with all the money who donate to the candidates, and whereas in, in my state, let's say those type of people will be donating to Democrats because most people in South Dakota identify with the Republican Party, they'll just get involved in the Republican Party in, in those particular states and donate to them. How do you get around that? Oh, the only way to get around it is by paying attention. Mm. And you can still throw money at something. But when it comes to the ballot box, it comes down to the ballot box, uh, it's raising awareness that grassroots move um, and raising that awareness and voting for your principles and, and just paying attention. I just, that's what people need to do. Pay attention. I mean, it's that it's that simple. And I think what you're basically saying is we could discuss play calls and strategies on the field. You know, we've been talking about sports, but if you don't get on the playing field, then there's not much more to talk about. Then, then of course, the other side's going to win by acclamation. And you know, I've seen this in red state after red state, um, where it's only the left actually on the field. No one's pressuring the Republicans to push certain things. And And that's really where I wanted to end this discussion. I've been speaking a lot about state legislatures. My audience knows I've been obsessed with it. After Democrats um, kind of won sort of the election at a federal level, I said, look, you know, Republicans control 31 state legislatures, 19 of them with supermajorities, 23 of them along with the governorships. There's so much you can do to push back against 
all the bad stuff going on in the country now. And I've been trying to get people focused, but one of the things that concerns me, and I want to get your take as a citizen legislator, a lot of these states, they pride themselves on being part-time, it's just a couple months a year, and then they're out, it's part-time, they don't really get much of a salary, and that, that sounds great. My concern is that you guys are already out of session, okay? It's, it's April, and you guys are done with, you're not going to come back for another three-quarters of a year. Isn't there a problem now that you have the federal executive branch controlling everything? What what is left over, it's the state executive branch and the courts controlling. State legislators were supposed to be the voice of the people. How could you be the voice of the people if the executive branches are legislating 365 days a year and you can't get into session to inveigh against that to counter it? Well, we're starting to see that that is a bit of a problem. Um, we operate, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, back in 2013, they established something called the Executive Board. And so the legislature um, elects um, five, ten, I think there's 15 people on this board, um, half from the Senate, half from the House, and they carry on legislative business during the course of the summer and fall until we go back again. That's how we've been doing things for that eight, nine years. But um, what it does is it gives that executive branch more strength. It absolutely does. And so for us to go from a part-time legislature to a full-time or even a more of a part-time um, it is, is a significant stretch for some. But, but it, I think it might be important. I think you might see that with the um, COVID dollars that came and with the budget process and um, with some of these things, I, I, you could see some changes. But legislatures need to be more active. Um, ours is active through this e-board. Um, yep. We do do some um, summer groups, but it's nothing that has a lot of strength is it, as much as being there. Uh, we, and, and the other part of it is we um, are running for election every two years. So um, even stretching that out to four years, would make more sense because you're you're active in the legislature sure. and then you have a summer then you're active and then you spend a summer campaigning and and that hurts us as well so increasing that to four years is something um that we talked about uh last session somebody got i'm a big fan of that i, I mean i think two years is is too light elections are good i love elections but the important thing is that you guys actually serve and actually do something. You know, what happens if Biden comes out with passport vaccines? You know, and we just have to rely on the governors to fight back. And as we see, there's a lot of problems with these governors. They're they're hooked into the same donors and establishment. It's the state legislators that represent the people walk among them. And, you know, look, if I can go back to the 1800s, then I'd be fine with a part-time legislature because it was a part-time executive. But you can't have a super-duper full-time overtime uh, executive branch, federal and state level, and then the, the legislatures are, are just a bunch of nothing. Then what's the point? So, I mean, I think we need to make the legislators stronger. I thank you, Rhonda, for having the courage to introduce this. Hopefully you could reintroduce this and push it again, push similar bills. I'm really looking forward to staying in touch with you, and, and let's you know keep, keep this audience informed as to what's going on in South Dakota, all right? Absolutely, and appreciate what you're doing to reach out to people. Thank you. God bless.
Uh, God bless you. Bye. So again, that was Rhonda Milstead. She is a South Dakota representative from southeastern South Dakota, I believe Hartford, South Dakota, outside of uh, Sioux Falls. And folks, I mean, this is the thing. I think in each state, there's a handful of people like Rhonda, more so in the House than the Senate usually, that are kind of like normal people, just like you and me. We don't have majorities. Typically, leadership is bad. And this is where we need to fight back. But we're going to need those tools. This is where we need to understand that we cannot be passive and conservative in strategy. Because the status quo every day is the executive branch and the courts destroying the country. So this is our only way to get back in the playing field. And this is what I'm trying to do with our state teams. If you are from South Dakota, please sign up for ConAction.network. If you want to be a team leader and head that team, now is your chance. Um, as Rhonda mentioned, there might be a special session. There, well, there has to be one for redistricting anyway. But with all, all these dollars being spent, billions of uh, – imagine like $3 billion from the feds being funneled into a state as small as South Dakota. That's going to influence the culture and trajectory and economy of the state. Well, who's going to decide how that money is spent? Well, if you don't, it will be the Department of Education, Department of Health, which we've learned is just as liberal in a state like South Dakota as it is in California. So again, our Constitution Action Liberty Strike Force teams are going to focus on this. And I look forward to having more of these legislators on the show um, to get a flavor of what's going on in these states. But this is some of what we're going to do. We need team leaders to meet with state legislators and county officials, raise concerns or voicing support for important issues that affect our national character, publishing issue briefs on legislation, disseminating them to elected officials and the public, engaging in your local media, social media, to name names of those pushing bad things and blocking the progress of good things, focus on the actions of local officials who are often overlooked, recruiting candidates to run for you know state legislature, county council, sheriff, prosecutor, county judge, school board member, sheriff, whatever it is, conduct research for our strike force teams on legislative issues, organize social media campaigns, naming the heroes and the zeros, pull resources together to hire attorneys and school and, and sue different you know, corporate interests or units of government like school boards for violations of basic human rights, which we're going to have to do a lot with the COVID fascism. Obviously, research state policy and budgetary data that could help drive our narrative, our agenda, and also help inform these members. Because remember, part of the problem is in states like this, these people often don't have a single paid staff. Or if they do, they have like one temporary one shared among three to five people. I know that's true in the Idaho house. And while we always like to say, oh, we want limited government, but how do you have legislators with no ammo and no staff and no information to combat an executive branch that has infinite resources? But this is where we are. This was Christy Nome, one of our better governors. It, it's just, it's the whole thing is so bizarre. I don't understand it. I mean, I do understand it. Basically, she's become kind of a conservative hero with COVID. 
So she felt she needed to, she didn't want to lose all of her support and just twisted herself into a pretzel. If you, again, if you understand the timeline of events, what she's saying is simply indefensible and just doesn't add up. We know exactly what it is. She's terrified of the business interests that are totally involved in her own staff. And this is the problem. We need to create our own parallel universe. But again, to end off on a positive note, as I mentioned last week, Christy Nome is not wrong on one point, that we do need to build coalitions across state lines. Now, the way to do that is not with fluff. It's with bills that have teeth in it. <laughs> Arkansas and Tennessee and Mississippi did this. Alabama, she needs to. She should have worked together and get all the states to pass HB 1217 like bills. So then it's not the NCAA fighting South Dakota, but fighting half the country. So she had the right broad idea, but obviously she wasn't trying to make it work because she's bought out by the transgender lobby like we saw in some of those other bills as well. So again, this is a glimpse to what is going on there. You know, when I first spoke to Rhonda, I asked her, I said, look, I noticed in the Senate you lost tons of Republicans. So I said to her, was that also, you know, were they influenced by Christy Nome or the Chamber of Commerce? And she was like, nah, with those people, they always vote that way. <laughs> so that's the thing. You have all these people running as Republicans. They vote like Democrats. Because as Rhonda mentioned, it boils down to one simple thing. We are not paying attention. So again, getting back to our original question, is this country worth saving? No. There's nothing to save. We need to create a new, almost a new country. But we have to get, get on the playing field. We have to create our own team. We've already lost years ago when we decided not to pay attention to politics and made that just a left-wing venture. Well, they took advantage of that, filled the vacuum, did what they wanted. So that's what I'm trying to do with these state-based teams. We have um, over 1,600 people signed up. So far, we need people in states like South Dakota, so feel free to sign up. And again, if you join me out in front site at constitutioncoach.com for our defense training, Folks, the sky's the limit in terms of what we could plot and strategize together. So really looking forward to that trip as well. A lot more left to this week. We are just getting started. So send this show to every one of your friends and relatives. Please give us a five-star rating at iTunes. Till tomorrow, we'll be back same time, same place. Stay armed, stay safe, stay informed.